The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. It may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 80 of the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on the 21st of May, 2021. From the mobile Aviator Sound Studios high atop the sixth floor of the Maui Coast Hotel in Kihei on the island of Maui in the state of Hawaii. Living in the Hawaii state of mind. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 80 of the Squawk Ident podcast is officially underway. Today's guest is an award-winning horseback archer and IHAA champion and currently ranked number one in the USA. He is just coming off of two competition wins over the last few weeks. He is a humble aviator and an Airbus captain with a long history at one of the most merged, blended, and evolved legacy carriers in the U.S. market. An airline we here on the show like to call Legacy Airlines, an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. And just yesterday, he scored a 27 on a scale of 1 to 10 of Aviator Tony's landing excellence scores. This score takes into consideration weather conditions, runway conditions, and demonstrated skill set. That landing was hot. He has type ratings in the A320 family, the Boeing 737, ATR 42 and 72, and the Jetstream 4100. He has graciously agreed to join us today while on this fantastic layover on the beautiful island of Maui with us. Captain Greg Ogburn, how you doing? Doing good. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for, you know, just agreeing to be on the show here and allowing me to interview you. Uh, we've flown together now about three or three or four times at least, maybe yeah. more. Yeah, over the past few years. Yeah. Just never quite could uh, connect either uh, layover times, red eyes, or whatever. So it's the first time we've been able to sit down and talk about stuff. So yeah, pleasure, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I saw your name. Thank you so much. I saw your name on the uh, on the schedule, and I thought, oh, great. You know, I wonder how everything's going. I know you had last time we flew together. It wasn't that long ago, but you were in the middle of a, a pretty big move from Arizona up to Northern California. Uh, you had to contend with uh, the horses and getting them settled, and and it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, logistically, it uh, to move uh, seven horses uh, and. Half of our household. Uh, we didn't take the whole thing. We're still uh, still got our Scottsdale home as a rental uh, right now, so uh, we didn't have to bring all of our possessions. But uh, just logistically speaking, moving horses are like uh, moving seven kids. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a. It's definitely it was a challenge, but uh, we got it all everything all settled and. You know, just in time for COVID to hit and cancel our uh, whole season last year, but uh, we're picking things up uh, this year. And off to a good start. Yeah, and congratulations on your, you. uh, your two recent wins there. 
Thank you. It's good, uh, like I said, good to be out on the road again and uh, get the horses out and compete and see old friends and make new ones. And yeah, it's yeah. a good, good hobby. Yeah, the first time we met, um, you know, you were telling me a little bit about your background and how you were, uh, you know, doing this horseback archery. And, and at the time, my daughter was, I think, about 13 or 12, and, and she was getting into archery, and I had purchased a, a recurve bow for her. And so I was very interested to hear more about your sport and, and the equipment that you were using. And you had some fantastic photos that you shared with me. Um, so I was very impressed early on. And even on some of your social media uh, page about the sport, you know, there you are right there in competition. You know, just how fast are you going when you're, you're shooting off those? Well, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's full speed. Um, <clears throat> you know, when we're riding down the course, it's, it's a full gallop. And um, one thing about the sport, it can be enjoyed by all levels at, at all speeds. However, if you want to be, uh, extremely competitive, both nationally and internationally. You've got to um, be able to ride and shoot uh, at a pretty good speed. So I've uh, my horse and I have developed a relationship, and so we we uh, we scoot down the course pretty pretty fast, uh, pretty much right at the maximum um, you know speed um, bonus allowance. We maximize our time bonuses. There's two ways to score. In the sport, it's uh, based on time and then what you, your accuracy, what you shoot on the target. So um, it's kind of a, the faster you go, the more speed bonus points you get. But then if you start going too fast, then it's like an inverse relationship. Your accuracy starts to go down. So there's a kind of a happy medium there where you uh, kind of find your comfort zone. And so over the years, we've been able to... Um, maximize our scores with speed and accuracy and so that's allowed us to uh to date we we have uh uh six american course records um and previously i had um one world record but it just got beat by a, a junior competitor in south africa uh just a few days ago so easy come easy go but uh, nonetheless we're my horse and I are generally uh, scoring uh, pretty well both nationally and, and internationally so uh, it's, uh, it's good fun. Now if for the listeners that you know are sitting here going well I'm dialed into the Squawk Eye Dance and Aviation podcast well, what are they talking about what is the International Horseback Archery Association what's it all about? Well, the the sport uh, is relatively new here in the United States. Um, so I think the first organized competition was uh, just as recently as 2010. So internationally, the sport's been around for quite a while. Uh, Asia, Europe, uh, places like that, it's been going on for a while. So us Americans are kind of newcomers to the sport. Um, so over the years, there's been... Um, a, a movement to standardize, if you will, uh, some of the courses and the rules, because different cultures and different areas of the world have prior they have priorities on what they like to shoot, different courses and, and styles and whatnot. So we, as the the International Horseback Archery Alliance, was formed in 2013, and it was uh, formed just to standardize like i said the the rule set course courses 
So if you go anywhere in the world and you shoot a particular course, it's going to be the same dimensions, the same lengths, same target distances from the track, those types of things. And that allows us to not only compete um, around the world, but also virtually. Uh, we do every two months, we hold a international postal match. So wherever you are in the world, whatever the course is designated, uh, you shoot that course and then we turn in our results to the International Federation. That's just a fun way to compete against others around the world without having to travel. Um, so the only way to do that is to have standardization of the rules and everybody following the rules. And um, so again, that, that organization was formed in 2013. Uh, here in the United States, our governing body is the Mounted Archery Association of Americas. So we're the designated um, Mounted Archery Association for the International Federation, which I am the, uh, the USA representative. So I represent all the archers here in the United States on the international body. So I'm on the board of directors for the international body as well as our national organization. I'm the vice president of the of the national organization. So you could say I'm pretty pretty involved in the in the sport. Uh, but yeah, that's what it stands for. Yeah, and you're you're showing me videos of what you did because I think like most people, they're like, well, you're riding a horse and you're shooting a bow and arrow or you're shooting an arrow from a bow. And you know, that must be hard because it's a moving target. But when you showed me what was involved, how fast you guys are traveling, I'm like, I couldn't hit the broad side of a building, let alone <laughs> a target. How many, uh, yeah. how many targets do you usually have in one pass? Well, in one pass, we'll, the most we'll have is five targets. Um, we have uh, three distinct styles that you'll see in any given competition. Uh, we have a what was referred to as a Hungarian style. It's a, it's a tower that sits in the middle of the 90-meter track, and it's got three sides to it, three, three targets. And the objective on that one is to run down the course and shoot as many arrows into the tower as possible in one pass. So you'll shoot forward at it, you'll shoot sideways, and then you turn around backwards and you shoot backwards at it. Uh, and so, so, so you're riding the horse, yeah. and you're... Your back is to the yes. head of the horse, and you're shooting, and you don't fall off. No. Yeah. Well, that's where the, the horsemanship comes in. So ah. luckily for, for me, I've been, I had my background growing up was riding horses. I've been on a, on a horse since I was five years old. So growing up with my father and my brother, we did a number of different activities on horseback, uh, team roping. We played some polo, you know, just uh, general Jim Connor type stuff. And then, uh, of course, when I went to uh, college and got into aviation, I, the horse thing kind of got, uh, you know, put on the back burner. And as I pursued an aviation career, so uh, I was away from it for about, uh, I don't know, about 12, 13 years until I met my, my wife. And she had a similar background growing up with horses, and so she informed me that we would be getting into horses. Oh, she informed you? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, definitely. Which, at that point, I could take it or leave it, but obviously, uh, you know, when the wife says you're going to do something, I guess you, you get into it. So, <laughs> yeah, so I've, as an adult, uh, this has kind of been a kind of a full circle 
uh, hobby. So just over the last, uh, uh, let's say we, we, I think we got our first horse back in 2003. So we've just been kind of getting back into it, uh, that whole time, but we didn't get into horseback archery until, um, uh, 2013. So it uh, took a while to find the sport, but, uh, once we found it, then it was, uh, definitely a, a match. Yeah. And you know, so, and it's great because, you know, most aviators out there truly do have a passion for this career field, this profession. Um, and it's that passion that really allows them to succeed because if you don't have it, you know, it's just a, a job and you get bitter and you start to complain and then all you talk about is work, 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 work. And so to have another passion, another interest outside of aviation seems to really be the key to having a balance. Yes. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, you've probably flown with with pilots before where this job is, that's all they have. And they fly the maximum amount of hours. They They just have no life outside of aviation. And I always thought that was kind of sad. And so I'm real thankful that not only... Do I have a an outside passion? But uh, my wife shares it with me. So we, for years, um, uh, she would do the horse thing, and I would, you know, ride dirt bikes out in Arizona. And then uh, once we got into the sport, we kind of merged, and now we're traveling all over the country, and in a lot of cases, uh, international uh, competitions. So it's allowed us to kind of tap into. Uh, a, a, another part of our relationship that we didn't know existed. So, and it's totally separate from aviation, you know, even though I go to competitions and everybody, you know, everybody calls me captain and all that stuff. It's all funny and everything. But when I'm out there with the horses, I don't think about airplanes, you know, one bit, it's just all about competition and, and just having fun and, you know, meeting new people and, and uh, so I'm thankful, yeah, for that. That uh, you gotta you gotta balance this job, you know, with something else. Or you know, we, as I always like to say, I I work to live. I don't live to work. So hopefully everybody shares that same yeah. sentiment. Something that I think uh, Europeans get, you know, they work only enough so that they can live and have that siesta in the afternoon, that glass of wine in the evening with their yeah. you know, uh, fresh meats and cheeses and, and just enjoy life. And it's kind of nonchalant. And here in America, you know, as a, an immigrant myself and my family coming from Europe, you know, we grew up with that European mentality. Yeah, you work hard, but it's just so that you can afford to do the things to have a, a nice home, a, you know, enjoyment with the family, go on these vacations, to have these bonding moments. You don't work so much that, you know, everybody's working because you got to pay for the big house and the big, you know, RV and all this stuff. Granted, if you can afford those things and use those in a productive way, sure. But I think in America, we have storage units upon storage units per family because we buy all this stuff mm-hmm. and we use it one or two times and then it gets put into a storage unit and we kind of, these things start to weigh us down. There's, there's a lot of truth to the theory that, you know, you, you find a passion for most of us it's aviation, but then you find something to balance that out, another passion, another connection, something else. And it seems to me that those aviators are usually the ones that don't get their panties in a bunch. Pardon the expression. 
But, yeah, I you know. I would agree with that. Yeah, when you so when I come to work, I'm I'm uh, focused and I'm excited to be to work and you know motivated. I don't feel as if you know I'm working. You, you know, I'm just worn out because of working. Um, and especially if I'm you know had a good weekend of uh, competition, it just uh, it's kind of nice to to come to work and shift gears, shift your mindset, and you know focus on flying. So. You know, flying is a is a form of therapy from for myself. I've thought that, always thought that. So it's just something you know that we all share when we get up into the, into the flight deck. That um, you know, it's just a blessing to to uh, be able to do this job. So yeah, and we've talked about this you know quite a bit. Actually, the first time we flew together all those years ago, uh, when I was still relatively new uh, here at the Legacy Carrier, and you know, you told me all about your journey and and that's we're going to get more into that here in a little bit but before we do i i kind of wanted to talk about this week's flight sequence together uh we haven't flown together probably in i don't know three or four months and and uh this trip is a five-day trip and for me it was i had a five-day trip then one day off and then we started this five-day trip so you know i was rested and prepared and and excited that i got to fly with you and you had just come off the, the couple weeks of wins, and so you're happy to be there. And we had a really good time. And our first really interaction, once we said hello and caught up and had all the niceties, you looked at me and said, so you think we're going to Dallas? I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> and we hadn't even, like, people hadn't even boarded the aircraft yet. It was an hour prior to departure. We had just got onto the flight deck. That aircraft had been parked there for a while so we were powering systems up and kind of just going through the minutiae of our pre-flight flow and i turned to look at you and i what well, I, I knew there was some weather pulling through but really what <laughs> you're like yeah did you look at it look at the taff i mean and before we even left how many times was our uh, dispatch release revised well, yeah, our edict time was uh, revised probably about uh, six or seven times before we where we left so yeah i do it's going to be an interesting flight to say the least but you know the the rate the weather was moving the direction was moving uh it and uh you know they gave us plenty of fuel for the flight so you know it's just one of those things where yeah i think we're we're probably eventually going to get in there but uh um yeah, just not, we're not going to be on time for sure. Yeah. So there we were, you know, we, we had pulled up all our documents on our electronic flight bags. Um, you know, you had mentioned an edict. For those listening to the show often know what an edict is, but if you're a first-time listener or, or not really into aviation, um, what is an edict? That's an expected departure clearance time. If the system, the ATC system, gets overwhelmed, then what air traffic control will do is any aircraft that is on the ground scheduled for departure may get a delay and an estimated departure clearance time is then given so that the flight crew and the airline could you know together decide on are we going to you know load up on time and push off the gate on time are they going to go sit somewhere on the airport and that of course you know you've got the engines running and it's burning fuel that costs money Sometimes aircraft will do that because they need the gate, and then they they run the aircraft on the auxiliary power unit and shut down both engines, which then gives the passengers the comfort of having air-conditioned air and power and 
and whatnot. So there's also the opportunity that maybe the edict is two or three hours away. So we're either going to deep plane the aircraft and have everybody sit in the terminal where it's comfortable and they can use the restroom and get food and whatnot, or we may not board at all. So the fact that we had an hour edict time before even really completing our pre-flight flows, and then we talked about the weather, and then originally we had one alternate, and then we got a revision on our flight release, and then we were given two alternates. Because the weather at our, to get to our alternate or the weather at our alternate was now looking not so good. So, you know, it was a very busy first hour of the sequence. Eventually, which was very nice because, you know, you looked at me and said, you know, I think that edict's not going to hold up. So I'm going to go ahead and have them board the aircraft. I think we'll probably maybe even push on time. And we can go sit out there if we have to sit for 10, 15 minutes. Are you okay with that? I felt very you know, honored to be included in that decision. And, and as I remember from flying with you in the past, it's your standard operating procedure. So it's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, and sure enough, by the time we pushed off the gate, the, the ground controller said, well, your edict time changed to uh, 12 minutes from now. Will you be ready to be in the air? So basically on time. And sure enough, we, we flew to Dallas, and uh, we got rerouted, as we mentioned in the last show, and rerouted again, and then we were given holding, and, and then we were given a vector and heading, and they asked us to look at the weather and see if we can get rerouted an even different way, because like you said, the weather was moving through relatively fast. We ended up landing in Dallas overblocked by, I think it was an hour, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah right around an hour. Yeah, so by the time we landed... Our schedule had us sitting in Dallas for about three hours and then flying to Puerto Rico for the layover. Now, three hours, we were only an hour late, no problem. However, that's not how it worked out because we, from what we were told is that we went illegal. Too many flight hours. We overblocked and therefore FAR 117 kicked in. They got a notice and crew scheduling removed us from that flying and had us flying to Charlotte in like 45 minutes. So we had to get off that plane and go to the new gate and get, and we were rushed, but not to the point where, you know, we felt overwhelmed, but you know, so be it. We went to Charlotte. Uh, and then that's where our schedule kind of fell apart, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Because uh, you went one direction to one layover hotel and I went to another. And that, they usually don't split us up like that. So you said, well, you know what? During that kind of quick progression from one gate to the other while we were in Dallas, the 45 minutes that we had between turns, because of this reassignment and trying to get all the flights out on time or at least close, uh, you said, well, I'm going to grab some food. So why don't you see if they can change our layover hotel to the long one? Because why stay at the airport hotel if we're only going to be there, if we're going to be there a long time? And there was some confusion there, but the crew scheduler told me, well, you're, you got a long layover, so you're downtown. And your captain's got a short layover, so he's at the airport. <laughs> and what ended up happening was you ended up deadheading the next morning for a long layover in Phoenix, and I stayed in Charlotte all day, mm -hmm. recorded a podcast with Rob <laughs> from the <laughs> hotel, uh, went for a run, and then that evening flew to Phoenix, and I stayed at the short layover hotel in Phoenix, and we ended up meeting up again on day three at the airport mm -hmm. in front of the, the gate that was flying us from Phoenix to Maui. 
and here we are. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was kind of a <sighs> discombobulated sequence. Uh, unfortunately, it's nice when you're together for the whole trip. You, you know, you're kind of on a routine. You kind of got each other's backs, per se. And then they just split us apart, and I was flying with a different captain for one leg, and you were deadheading. So these things happen. But mm-hmm. we were very fortunate that we were able to meet back up again and, and fly to Maui. Mm-hmm. So, and then how was that layover for you? Was it uh, an exciting, long oh, layover? Well, Phoenix, uh, yeah. Yeah, typical downtown Phoenix layover. A uh, little bit of workout, a little bit of food. Uh, yeah, it's uh, nothing special, but nothing, nothing really stood out. Yeah, being in your old stomping grounds. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, here we are in Maui, and uh, last night we got to go get a good dinner. Really enjoyed our time uh, grabbing a, a bite to eat and a, a taste the adult beverage, and, and then here we are today recording. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, what I wanted to do now was talk a little bit about your journey. It is relatively interesting because... You know, you've got a lot of different airlines under your belt, um, and not because you were interviewing places, but because of the nature of our business. One interview. One interview, <laughs> and how many airlines later? Um, but let's start at the beginning. You know, you, you mentioned that you went to college and did some aviation work, but when did your, your interest in aviation truly begin? Uh, yeah, probably at a, like a lot of us. Young kid, 9, 10, 11 years old, got a small airplane ride and just thought that was the coolest thing. And then uh, my brother, older brother and I, we used to travel to go see our, our grandparents. And so got to fly on an airliner every summer and just uh, a lot of times American Airlines because my grandparents lived in Arkansas, Little Rock. Uh, so we uh, you know, got to fly on, on the airliners and just thought that was a the neatest thing and so that that kind of planted the seed and then uh, I had a high school uh, teacher who he had started an aviation career but he never finished and so I mentioned to him that uh, I was interested in being a being a pilot and so he kind of well you know you can go to college for that and I was like oh wasn't aware of that so he kind of steered me in the right direction and and uh, never having anybody in my family in the industry, so um, I was kind of on my own to to get it figured out. But as it turned out, uh, um, my father was living in Arizona at the time, and so I got to go to Arizona State. They had a flight program, and so that's uh, that's the route I took and uh, did the traditional flight instructor thing, and and then I started working on the ramp for a smaller. Legacy airline, and uh, worked on the ramp. And while I was, uh, so I've been in the in the industry since I was twenty years old. Uh, and so after graduation, then I got a a job at a flying Grand Canyon tours at one of the airlines flying the one of the tour companies. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a few months and uh, got some got some twin otter time, some turbine time, and. Then I got on with uh, a commuter airline back east, based in JFK, 
and uh, flew for them for about three, three and a half years, and then got rehired as a pilot for the same small legacy airline as I started on the ramp with, and and then, like you said, uh, three uniform changes later, here we are. So your your journey in aviation really started in Pueblo West, Colorado, and mm-hmm. your typing teacher was the one that that mm-hmm. had the kind of a paused aviation career that got you started on it? Right. So he, he had started his journey as a, he wanted to be an airline pilot. And I think, uh, um, he never to get the full story, but for one, re- one reason or another, he just never finished the program. I think he got his private license and just never finished. But um, he ended up becoming a teacher. So he was my teacher years later. And uh, so he's the one who who started to steer me in that direction. And then once I figured out, uh, you know, which college I was going to go to, Arizona State, then, you know, it was just full focus at that point. So Yeah, and Arizona State at the time that you went there called it uh, Aerotech? Yes. That was the, so was that in conjunction with your your general education classes and yeah. all that too? Yeah, it was a similar you know, if not the same degree as say Embry Riddle, but for at least at that time, it was uh, what we referred to as the poor man's Embry Riddle. So mm. it was uh, my flight training was significantly uh, less cost, I believe. So um, yeah, so I got an aviation degree from Arizona State. And um, what airport were you flying out of? So I started at Falcon Field in Mesa. Yeah, and uh, at that time. Uh, the flight program had uh, satellite, uh, most of the flight schools at all the airports around the Phoenix area had a contract with the, with the, uh, with the Arizona State Flight Program. Mm-hmm. So you could fly at any of those schools that you wanted to, and they had a, a discounted rate for the, for the program. And so they had to go through, you know, the 141 Mm-hmm. Uh, program to finish to qualify for credits at school but all the classes were on the main campus so you, in addition to your aviation classes you had all the university classes you know psychology and philosophy and you know all that other stuff that um, yeah. i'm not quite sure uh, uh what that has has to do with aviation but uh, maybe it does i just don't know it <laughs> oh sure i mean you 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 definitely use that an understanding of the way people think and perceive things as a captain and PAC, you know, you're definitely are looking at your crew, your not just your first officer, but your flight attendants. And, you know, it was maybe a little bit of that education that you received at Arizona state, uh, kind of lends its way to making your decisions even today, I think. Yeah. And, and, and I would also say just experience, you know, you, after, Sitting as a first officer for 18 years, you tend to, you know, pick up on things from captains, both good and bad. And so, as you as you know, you fly with people and you think, oh, yeah, I'd like to be a captain like that. Or conversely, you fly with somebody and, yeah, I don't want to be like that when I'm a captain. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the first officer is probably one of the hardest uh, jobs in the industry because you you have to, even though there's standardization, you still have to deal with you know so many different personalities per se, and so yeah. 
at least as a captain, you get to fly with your favorite captain every time. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's like nice. that chameleon. Uh, we've heard this before. We probably talked about this before on the show as well. Is is uh, first officer? Uh, they adopt a label as being a chameleon mm-hmm. because, like you said, we've we've said this many many times in the past few years uh, of the podcast. Is that you learn from everyone. At least that's the goal. You should learn from the good, the bad, uh, and learn from yourself too. Learn, you know, the mistakes that you've made in the past. Uh, learn from them, um, and learn how, what the best way to handle them, and what maybe the way that you shouldn't handle them from the people that you're flying with, and maybe even from the cabin crew because maybe there, there's a situation that wasn't handled quite right, or maybe you know you were going down a direction that was going to bite you. And so you have to react to that. You have to learn from it. And, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that, that, uh, you know, 18 years as an FO, you learn, I think 18 years as an FO, most people first reaction is, Oh my God. You know, like after a year or two, you're like, oh, I'm ready for my fourth stripe. I'm ready. I'm ready. But you know, this cyclical nature of this industry that happens in the end, if I were to have some kind of positive outlook on that experience is that I think a long time as an FO at a mainline carrier really does shape your your personality as a captain. Yeah, I would agree with that. So your your journey in aviation brought you to doing Grand Canyon tours. We've heard about some operators doing these Grand Canyon tours. Um, as when I was a flight instructor, that was something that was really looked at um, because I too did all my flight training in Phoenix, or most of it at least, mm-hmm. um, from instrument forward. And I ended up flight instructing out of Chandler, hop, skip, and a jump from Mesa and Falcon and, and Williams Gateway and all that. Um, and, and that was definitely an option. Um, would you say that experience was a positive experience flying Grand Canyon tours? Yeah, it would just just because it was probably some of the most challenging and uh, rewarding flying that I've ever done. I mean, we're landing on you know these dirt strips in the middle of the canyon, uh, Grand Canyon flying just in general, turbulence, the landing at the canyon airport, the winds, and you're flying a, a twin otter, which is basically just a little kite, you know, <laughs> hovering over the over the runway. You get you 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 learn some pretty good um, crosswind techniques. You learn how to fly an airplane, in my opinion. Uh, so I've, that's translated, you know, throughout my career. Uh, I think I've I've always had a, a, a after that experience a decent ability to um, you know to fly in you know, strong winds, and yeah. that's never really bothered yeah, me. Yeah, twenty twenty or five years later, you can score twenty seven on the Aviator Tony scale of landing. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that that's great to hear um because I, I really don't know if I've ever asked anyone about the the Grand Canyon tour flying before. I I have known quite a few people that have done it. Um and and usually small operators you either love it or you hate it kind of thing. It just depends on who the boss is at any particular time, I think. Well, well yeah, well back then, you, you know, at the time, I don't think you really stopped to smell the roses and, and, and realize how lucky 
and you are to be doing it because all you can focus, all everybody's focus was, I got to you know, get this flight time and move on to something else. So it's it's just all all about uh, you know updating the resume and trying to move on, move on. But looking back on it, I mean that was some of the funnest flying I've ever done, uh, and probably you know will do in a commercial capacity. So you know, unfortunately, you know when you're when you're that young, in your early twenties, you're just uh, so focused on trying to get out of there. Sometimes you don't really uh, stop and enjoy the moment uh, as much as you should but yeah and we didn't get paid a lot uh, but that that wasn't the point it was just get the experience and, and get out of there and how did that job transition to the regional job well um good i think um <laughs> well i should say my first winter on the east coast was the winter of uh 90 and at that time, uh, my first base was Washington, D.C., and they, they got hit with the major blizzard of, ni- of 1995. Um, and at that time, I think I had maybe 12 hours of actual flying you know, in an airplane because all my instrument time has just been either simulated or very little, you know, actual. So yeah, twelve hours of instrument time. Twelve hours of, of actual, actual instrument yeah. time. Yeah. So here I am flying on the East Coast and the nasty weather, and so you, you learning curve is goes up pretty pretty quickly. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a um, it was a good experience. So you know, I think uh, it translated pretty well. I think it just goes back to the, to the basic training. You know, I was trained very well good instructors, good program. So it, it wasn't that big a deal, but, um, yeah, it, uh, it went pretty well in my opinion. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely an eye opener getting into, uh, getting into all that weather. But after a while, it just no big deal. Another day at the office. That's right. Yeah. How many years were you there? So I was there for about three and a half years. And then, and then, 1998 uh, got rehired as a pilot with the uh, airline that I started working on the ramp with years ago. Mm. Yeah, we like to call that airline uh, Cactus Air. Yeah, an alias to the right. to one of the originals there. Right. Um, and so that must have been pretty cool. Uh, as a matter of fact, of on our leg yesterday, leaving Phoenix, you and the ramper were having a conversation. It was a little bit of a uh, a blast from the past talking about how you used to work on the ramp and you guys were talking to each other. And I really, I was pleasantly surprised to hear this reminiscence going on. I thought that is so cool to work in one department and do that for years, you know, and, and then do all the blow wing stuff. And then now you get to be at command of an airplane at the same place. And a lot of those people are the same people. Yeah, I still see some of my old uh, old ramp buddies out there. And I remember my interview when I was 20 years old. Well, at that time, Cactus Airline had a um, uh, an age limit to work on the ramp. You had to be um, 21. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my, I'm sorry, 20. You had to be 20. Mm-hmm. So my 20th birthday, I mean, I walked in my resume and so, by the time it got through the channels, uh, so that was June. So by the time it got my interview and got hired, it was 
January uh, of the following year of 1990. And so I was 20 years old, and I remember the lady asking me, you know, why do you want to... Why do you want to work here? And I just looked her in the eye and says, I'm going to be a pilot here someday. And she's like, oh, okay, I like your attitude. And that was my, that was my focus. That's, That's what it. I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I used that time uh, over the years as I was getting my ratings and everything. I got to know some of the pilots. You know, they'd be, some of the first officers would be walking around with the captains, you know, on pre-flight. I'd, you know, started talking to him, whatever, and I got to know the chief pilot. I'd go up into his office and just, just kind of, yeah. you know, shoot the breeze. And so by the time I left to go to the Grand Canyon, I had established, you know, some good connections there. And uh, just so happens when I got interviewed years later, I pretty much knew everybody in the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, the semi evaluator actually wrote me a recommendation to the Air Guard in Phoenix years prior that he was part of. So I knew him. And then the the board, the interview board, I knew three out of the five people there. So it was so I felt really comfortable with the interview and, and you know, I prepped for it because I wanted it. And uh but still the you know, it was really more of a Tell us what you've been doing since you've been gone. It was, it felt like they were just welcoming, welcoming me back yeah. into the fold, and so it was, it was a pretty special moment to get to get hired as pilot. And then over the years, you know, I see some of my old ramp buddies down there still, and you know, in, in the early days, you know, before all the, you know, the union stuff got in there I'd sometimes I'd go you know help them load bags or you know I'd be doing the walk around I'd grab a few bags you know and toss them on there and yeah. just kind of shoot the breeze with them and um but you know over the years that all that kind of stuff and after the mergers you know you get some faces down there that you don't recognize so so yeah it was before we push back I got you know to talk to get talk to that guy yesterday and so yeah he knew some of the mutual you know, people. And so it's always, always kind of nice to catch up with those Phoenix guys. Yeah. It's impressive. It's, it's nice to hear. And it's a little intimidating too, to sit there in the right seat and go, wow, this guy knows everybody. You know, (laughs) Um, I better watch my P's and Q's (laughs) flying with Greg over here. Um, But you know, you, you've had some time there at Cactus Air and uh, actually I was a either in training or a new flight instructor when it happened. Um, when the the merger with what we call All American Air and Cactus Air happened, and it was an ugly time, um, I was privy to some of what was happening and with the unions and and mergers and pilot contracts and all the things and the fights that were happening between one pilot group and the other, and it was ugly. Um, and so you spent some time there. Was that the 7-3 to start and the Airbus after? Or? Yeah, so the first 10 years was on the 737. And then right during the merger, uh, I was one of the last ones to upgrade on the 737. So I was like some, about the third most junior captain at the time on the 737. And then that was 2008. So early in the year, like April, uh, checked out. So I had my 
crispy hat. You know, I didn't even have it broken yet. Didn't even have an ego yet. And uh, then the summer of 08 hits, you know, and so we get the, the economy just starting to tank, fuel prices going up, and I'm thinking, um, yeah, this doesn't look good. And so then by the end of the summer, um, we started really getting heavy into the, to the um, feud, if you will, with, with the other pilot group. And so we ended up furloughing on our side and uh, not system-wide, but just on, on the west side. So consequently, I got downgraded later during the, at the end of the summer, in the fall. So I could have gone back to the 737, but um, after 10 years in that fleet, we were starting to retire the 737. So I was, I was done with it. I was ready to move on to the bus. And so that's when I went to, to the right seat in the, on the Airbus in, in uh, 2008. And, um, you know, for me, it was, it was kind of a blessing because now I was a senior FO. So for that 10 years, it was, it was a perfect storm. You know, we had uh, not only the, uh, the situation with the, with the other pilot group going on, then we got hit with age 65. Mm-hmm. So then the pilots that were at age 60 got another five years added on right. of mandatory retirement. So that equated to people like myself of 10 years of stagnation. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just us. You know, you, you guys felt it at, at, at the regional. And, yep. and so it was just system-wide. It was the, the 10 years of, of uh, the lost the Lost decade is what yeah. it was. Yeah, Sandpiper, we felt that too. We're, we all yeah. looked at each other like, oh, now we're going to be FOs forever. Right. Yeah, and so for me, it was just kind of a blessing because uh, I had friends who didn't lose their seat, but now they're junior captains on reserve, just miserable schedule, you know, no control over their schedules, super junior, and they couldn't bid off. There were no bids, so yeah. they were stuck. So for me, as senior FO, weekends off, bid what I want. Uh, yeah, it it uh, I was in retrospect, it was I was pretty lucky. Yeah, and and you were there about ten years, and then in was it two thousand and fourteen, somewhere around there, where the other merger happened with the uh, yeah, Legacy Airlines. Yeah, so thirteen is when the other merger happened, mm-hmm. and. So by the time we got all that uh, worked out seniority-wise, then the first um, bid I was able to upgrade again was uh, 2017, I believe. Yeah, mm. 2017. So spring spring of 2017 is when I uh, got my seat back in Los Angeles. Yeah. I think that's where I flew with you the first time. Yeah, and I was relatively new. I uh, came over through that flow-through agreement in 2018 the early 2018 so mm-hmm. yeah we were both kind of you know newer on the at the base and and mm-hmm. both just happy to be there and, and yeah, it was a very positive experience and here we are now i want to ask you a question about since you've flown both and you've got extensive time on both the Boeing and I'm not here to try to start a feud between Boeing pilots and Airbus pilots, but we've, we hear this all the time and then COVID hit and nobody, you know, 
even uttered a word of, of if it ain't Boeing, it ain't going, or you Airbus guys, you know, and all the, the jokes and the memes and the, and the Larson cartoons about the difference between Boeing with the million gauges, steam gauges, and then the Airbus up, down, left, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but since you have extensive experience on both, what would be the pros and cons of each as a, from a pilot's perspective? Well, um, I don't know. I, I can just tell you that um, from a, especially the older I get, the from a comfort level, the Airbus is hands down the more comfortable airplane to fly in. And, and over a course of a trip, um, I just I just feel like uh, not as fatigued as I did on the on the seven threes. But you got to remember the the seven threes that we were flying at. Cactus Air, they were some of the most basic. I mean, there's 737 200s, we had 737 uh, 300 hardball steam gauges. Um, Like I said, those those 200 uh, uh, airplanes, I mean, it was tune the radial, Mm -hmm. twist the knob. I mean, just just basic old school school navigation. So, so to go to an Airbus airplane where everything's, you know, managed and integrated, it's just, uh, yeah, it's no comparison. So, and I've been on the Airbus so, so long now that I just, yeah, I couldn't imagine going back to the to the 7.3. But it was a fun airplane to fly, the 7.3. Uh, but I do, I do enjoy flying the Airbus for sure. Do you ever miss the yoke? No, that's one thing I don't <laughs> miss. Yeah. So, in fact, uh, that's the one thing, you know, at some point I do want to try flying wide body. Uh, but, yeah, just the, the thought of flying international for hours on end with the with the yoke and not being able to cross your legs, you know, like we can in the Airbus. It just, yeah. it just seems odd to me. Yeah, it's quite comfortable, <laughs> isn't it? You know, we get the tray table. I always hear people, you know, joke or make fun of me going, oh, the tray table. It's like, hey, you know, I, I use it. As a desk, I write stuff all the time. Taxi instructions, it's really easy. I don't have to, like, twist my wrist to kind of write on a notepad that's on the uh, side window there on one of those chart holders. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's all right there. Meals are, are a lot of fun. I don't have to, you know, prop stuff up on my lap with a napkin and try not to spill on myself. I've got a tray table right there. Um, it, it just, it, it's absolutely a comfortable airplane. As a matter of fact, when I came over, uh, after years, uh, close off and on, thirteen years of commuting from either L.A. or Seattle to to Chicago or New York, um, and I sat on many jump seats from MD eighties to seven five seven sixes to Airbuses to Boeing's and seven threes and and man, Alaska that second jump seat on the seven three. Oh my God, that was yeah, that was, that's, yeah. Not, that's not a jump seat. That's no. a it's <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, my chiropractor loved me when I were <laughs> ride on, yeah, try to commute on one of those. Um, but I knew I had I had a choice. I could do seven three, L A, which meant flying out of Ontario, Santa Ana, and Los Angeles as a combined base. Which our listeners know, Ontario is five minutes from my house. I'm basically under the the base leg, and for those that are coming straight in, I see Amazon Prime and FedEx and UPS all day, all night. Um, and so I had a decision to make whether to pick the shorter, the possibility at least for a shorter commute driving or 
stick to the Airbus, which at the at that time was only out of Los Angeles. However, it had international flying. It was an international division. It had the Hawaii flying, which was something I was really looking forward to as we're sitting here on a somewhat cloudy but cool Maui afternoon. Um, and it was that comfort level, the fact that you can cross your legs. And if you're doing like, what's it, six hours and mm-hmm. 35 minutes or something like that yesterday, mm-hmm. that's a long time. The ability to stand up in the cockpit and stretch your legs occasionally, you know, that's, that's everything, mm-hmm. you know? And if you're, if that's going to be your office for a decade or two, why not be comfortable? Yeah. And then, and then the, uh, in airplanes are just so nice to fly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the 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 Neo, the new engine de- mm-hmm. design, or the the three twenty one NX, um, quieter, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little smoother. I think uh, the Logic with the uh, the auto flare at a hundred rather than fifty, mm-hmm. I, I really like that. I can mm-hmm. tell that big. A lot of people go, oh, I don't really can't really tell. But I I really like it because it kind of gives you a little bit more time to really get a feel for it, which you know I know that wasn't a factor yesterday at all. And that landing. And we got to talk about that landing. So let's set the conditions. We, the winds were right crosswind in Maui, which Maui's windy quite often. Weather conditions change, especially in the afternoon as we were approaching. Um, but it was gusting. gusting at, at one point, I believe the ATIS was saying it was 22 gusting at 34. And a little bit of a right crosswind and short runway. So, you know. Auto brakes medium, ran through the landing assessment, made sure that we had enough runway available considering the conditions, the temperature, and, and whatnot. And I thought, okay, well, most pilots, I, I noticed I would use the words pilots, not uh, captain or first officers, but most pilots, when they come into a place like Maui or anywhere with a short runway with windy conditions, and even in the briefing, a lot of captains will say, don't worry about greasing it on just plant it we don't have runway to spare on this mm. you know and so most people just plant it and it's it's a beautiful flight not a bump in the sky the passengers slept the whole way and then the last five seconds of the flight you know it's planting the airplane and everybody's like oh how the flight was awful i'm like well 99 percent of it was smooth just the landing was yeah. a little aircraft carrier ish you know they don't remember that you know they don't remember any of that they can't see past the five seconds and uh, and yesterday, with the windy conditions, I actually was anticipating a firm landing because, like I said, short runway, the options to turn off the runway are, are, are very few, and it was very windy, um, and it was gusty. You were working. You were working hard the last 500 feet, and that airplane, and we had a wing drop at one point and i'm sitting there i'm you know i'm relatively calm because i've flown with you many times and i and i know i've seen your ability and as a captain with this many hours on the airbus i mean who am i to judge but when that last 50 feet came and we got that little bit of gust and the nose started to weather vane and you just planted it on to the point where i thought it was we were going to have one of those landings where it was going to be, you know, a nice. Instead, right at the last second in the flare, it was like landing on a pillow. <laughs> and I was like, I said to myself, 
down. <laughs> right away, I don't even think the nose gear was down. You said, and that's how it's done. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to throw that in there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, very, very good. And to have our our senior flight attendant, our number one, you know, as soon as the door opened, she was like, that landing was shit hot. <laughs> that was, I was very impressed. So, yeah. you know, good job. Thanks. So, you know, you've got a, a, a history. You've had one interview with this company and you've flown under three different names. Mm-hmm. Someone that's getting into this industry that's working on their ratings right now, knowing what we're dealing with. The COVID thing is really, I think, a blink in the eye because, or blink of the eye, because when we look at the numbers, we're starting to see the, the traveling public is coming up there. I just saw one of our company episodes of their little podcast that they do for employees on the, on the EFB that said that we had the highest numbers since 2019 last week, uh, which is wonderful to hear. And I think that in the next six to 12 months, we're going to see pretty close to normal numbers with an increase in revenue to the Mm -hmm. point where we've already talked about they're going to start hiring off the street. We've already talked about bringing all the airplanes that are parked back. So for someone who's starting out and working on the ratings, what advice can you give someone that looks at this and goes, I don't know if I want to go airline route. Well, I never really looked at, you know, the trends. Because if I would have, I just followed my heart and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I just did it. Because if I would have looked, because back in the 90s, early 90s, same, same scenario, same cycle. You know, economic downturn, nobody's hiring. So if you look at that, trend or had I looked at that trend at that time then you know it's easy to get discouraged and just say yeah you know what this isn't going to work out but unbeknownst to everybody else cycle changes floodgates open everybody's hiring it's just and so everything goes in waves and so you kind of get in on that that wave and and just ride it but I think um you know, I don't think any of us really got into this for the, you know, making a lot of money or whatever the, the uh, external reasons that that people outside the industry think it's all about. We we got into it because we love flying and, and the thought of doing this as a career. Uh, so I think just stay with that, you know, go just keep keep moving on because... You know, these things are going to change, and, and they always do. So unless they, you know, replace us all with, uh, you know, autonomous airplanes, um, you know, then, yeah, we're going to need we're gonna need pilots down the road. So just uh, follow your dream. Yeah. Now, you said earlier that some of the best flying you ever did was when you're doing the canyon tours. Right. Do you still feel that? Flying for legacy. Well, yeah. Uh, so during the uh, during the cactus years, you know, we kind of did the same same destinations, same things. Uh, then after the first merger, 
it opened up a few more cities when I went to the Airbus that I hadn't gone before. That was, a little, that was kind of exciting to go to some places. But now, you know, we're flying to Hawaii. We're going to, you know, the you know, Bahamas. We're going to South America. We're going to Mexico. I mean, we went all these different places. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting again. So it's never, you know, really the same destinations. We're not flying to you know, Omaha and Des Moines all the time. It's always something different, it seems like. Yeah. And, you you know, you were very fortunate, as you mentioned earlier, that you didn't have to commute very much in your career. Mm-hmm. You did some at the beginning of the career, and and now you here you are all these years later finding yourself commuting again. Right. At a time when there's not that many flights connecting destinations from Northern California to Southern California. Right. What has been some of the biggest challenge in commuting for you in the past, say, year? Well, the past year was, you know, with COVID. Uh, so right now I commute out of Santa Rosa Airport down to Los Angeles. So unlike the Phoenix, L.A. route that I was commuting, which is very busy, a lot of flight attendants, a lot of pilots, uh, it's a busy commute. So this commute, uh, I very rarely see another crew member trying to go down. Uh, that being said, I have to commute offline because we don't have any any flights that go in there to LA. So uh, typically, I have to fly on another airline, their commuter out of there. And so when I first started the commute, it was four flights a day down to Los Angeles. So it was a lot of options, and it's just so convenient because where where I live now is 15 minutes from the airport there in Santa Rosa. So he's cute little airport, walk out on the tarmac, get on the airplane, and, and uh, typically seats available and um, not a problem. Well, COVID hits and drops down to one flight a day. So then I found myself having to drive quite a bit to San Francisco, which is an hour and a half away, and, and try to fly, get a flight out of there. So that part's been, you know, a little challenging, but still very very doable um and you're flying are you uh, driving over the golden gate uh typically not because to get to the airport if you go over the golden gate you gotta go through the city gotta go through the mm-hmm. park and hit all those traffic lights so i typically go around the uh, uh across the richmond bridge mm-hmm. over by oakland and cross the uh the bay bridge and um and uh, go that way through the city Mm-hmm. That's typically how I go. Yeah, yeah. Those bridge tolls, man. It's yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> and when I lived there, was it what a dollar to cross the uh, Bay uh, Bridge and five dollars for the Golden Gate? Yeah, I think it's like six bucks. Six bucks now for the Bay, and what is it? The Golden Gate, like fifteen or something? No, it's not quite that much. Um, I don't know. I've got one of those little. little you got the yeah. I got the easy get a cow. pass or whatever. Yeah, so, you know, so so commuting can be a challenge. And, you know, someone who's starting out going, well, uh, commuting, you know, you get to fly in and, and then just walk over to your gate and go. But that's not really the case, is it? I mean, a lot of times you have to pick up a hotel and that can get relatively expensive like you did on this trip, right? Right. So, yeah, this last year, because uh, a lot of my trips, I wasn't able to commute in um either one end or the other. So a lot of times I have to come in the night before which would require, you know, getting a hotel and, and, uh, 
so you got enough rest for the for the trip the next day. So yeah, I found my hotel expenses have gone. Now you know, granted, I could get a crash pad like I I did when I was much younger when I was commuting to uh, New York, but now that I'm in my fifties, I just can't. I can't do the crash pad. Oh, you don't want to be on the top bunk with <laughs> nah. someone underneath you? <laughs> nah, I just can't do that anymore. So. Yeah. yeah, when you're young, it's like those kind of things. Or you, you put up with it because it's new, it's exciting. But then as yeah. your time goes on, you'd rather even get a little apartment or something. You know? um, so your, your journey has, has been kind of a, a, a pleasant transition. You've had your ups and your downs. Have you had any moments in your career where at the, maybe at the conclusion of a flight or a sequence, you said, oh, man, I, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. No, never had that. Not I even mean, during like a... I mean, I've had... Like on your worst day. Yeah, I mean, I've had trips where, you know, you fly with a captain and it's like you look back on it thinking, yeah, I'm not flying with that guy anymore. <laughs> do not <laughs> pair. <laughs> yeah, do not pair with that guy. And in my... Well... Uh, before I became a captain as a FO at at the at the Cactus Airline, uh, it was the FO who could. Well, I can not take that back. Both pilots could could do a no fly list, but uh, I kind of prided myself in. It, I went 13 years without having anybody on my no fly list, and I'd flown with all the notorious type captains. And for the most part, uh, I'd always give everybody a chance. And for the most part, uh, I got along with most of them. Um, there were a few that were just like, yeah, I'd rather not fly with them, but I wouldn't no fly them or, you know, call in sick for a trip. I wouldn't do any of that. It just, I just knew that, okay, these four days are going to be not maybe as enjoyable as others, but, you know, never really had a safety issue. Until the year four thirteen, when I flew with somebody, and it this particular captain just for four days was just relentless. Um, and at the end of the trip, I just made the decision. <laughs> and he, you know, as he's leaving, you know, as as pilots, we typically, yeah, okay, we'll see you next time. Good flying with you, all that yeah. stuff. <laughs> I just turned and looked at him. And I said, you know what, no. No, I'm not going to fly with you anymore. And uh, matter of fact, I need to congratulate you because up to this point, I've had nobody on my no-fly list. You're the first. Congratulations. He's like, oh, you know, you don't have to be like that. I'm like, yeah, just just go. I'm, I've I've had enough. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, it's actually commendable that you have the patience. I know I've told a few stories in the past about captains and. And, you know, you, you reach your wit's end because it's so frustrating. And it's not necessarily because they're bad pilots. It's just that their personalities are so rough sometimes or they're critical or, or no matter whose leg it is to fly, they're really flying. Well, yeah, that, that's exactly, in my opinion, the most dangerous uh, personality is, a, uh, is that type of personality, the uh, micromanagement, mm -hmm. micromanagement style of leadership. In my opinion, has no business being in the flight deck because, like you said, you don't know who's flying because when it's your leg, it's really his leg, and yeah. so you know you have kind of no idea. Oh, all right, am I flying this or are you flying this? Because I can't tell right now. And so it, yeah, in my opinion, I, I, that's probably the um, 
one of the most dangerous uh, types of leadership. Mm-hmm. So again, that's a, a type of leadership that I didn't do not want to be like. Um, and so it was for that reason that uh, I had to. The one. He's, he was the, the one. only one. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, after 23 years at this airline now, he's, he's, the, he's the only one. Yeah, and speaking of, you know, you, you, sometimes you get into the, to the flight deck and you're flying with, with someone. And, and I think when you make it to this stage in the game at a legacy carrier, whether it's a U.S. legacy carrier or a legacy carrier or a national carrier overseas, international, and you're flying narrow body, heavy equipment, whatever it is, cargo equipment, and you kind of, you've been around, you've got, you've got the experience, you've been around, and so to get here, I think all those other personalities are usually weeded out, but sometimes things happen in people's lives, you you really never know who you're flying with to a certain degree, and you come across a pilot, and in your case, you'd come across an FO that maybe is just not all there. They're having a bad time. How do you handle that? Well, fortunately, I haven't had anything too drastic. Uh, but yeah, I would agree with you. There's been people I've flown with over the years, both as an FO and as a captain, that you, you know you you notice changes amongst them. You know, if there's something going on with them at home or whatever, and you just notice that. Okay, something's off. There's a there's a difference here because this this guy or girl is is uh, is normally a certain way, and now they're they're not. So, you know, I, and again, part of being uh, uh, I guess that education comes in into play. It's part of being a good FO is is being a good psychologist sometimes, or being a good listener. Yeah, because you know you fly with a pilot and oh, it's going through a divorce well yeah i've listened sat there and listened to many of divorce stories over the years you know just uh uh so i think you know as a as an fo you tend to be a learn to be a good listener sometimes and yeah i mean that's all it takes is is just uh they need somebody to somebody to talk to and and uh i've actually joked about that at home with the family i'm like you know i'm in therapy every single day that I'm flying on the flight line. I get to 37,000 feet, the seatbelt sign goes off, and we take the headsets off, and we just sit there, and I get to have an adult conversation about whatever, or, or the other pilot next to me gets to have their conversation about what's you know going on in their lives, their perception of, of the drama that they have, and the other person is usually pretty good to listen and to go, oh, really, and tell, you know, that's cool. Um, unless they're just way out there on a left field. But so I have my therapy sessions. I get to, I get to talk with my peers that are like-minded. I mean, it's, it's really pretty cathartic to sit there and, you know, come home from work and I got to talk about my stuff, my problems. And then (laughs) I come home and I get the look like you need to give me time because I need to now, you know talk to you about everything that's happened and let me tell you about what your kids did while you were gone <laughs> so you're like yeah. wait a minute i just <laughs> that's a whole whole new set of problems exactly yeah um you know it so far you've flown a, a good handful of airplanes have you had a favorite no it's got to be the airbus you know just because i got the most most time in it um 
Well, I would have to say that that Twin Otter was, was pretty fun to fly. And, and like I said, the type, type of flying that we did, um, that was pretty exciting looking back on it. Yeah. And in all your years of, of flying and having non-normal or emergencies happen, does one stick out in your mind as pretty major? I never really had, uh, say, any type of major issue. You know, some flap problems, had a, you know, some gear indication problems over the years. Um, but, uh, yeah, one one Airbus flight, uh, we we ended up making the nightly news. One night we had a flap problem, and, you know, we had uh, this was back before we had our landing app, so we had to run all the numbers for... You know, zero flap landing and all that stuff. Yeah. Malfunction so, increments and yeah, landing distance computations exactly. and all the charts and yeah. Yeah. So we're sifting through all the charts while we're flying all over Southern California. Well, unbeknownst to us, that gave the uh, news crews enough time to get down to the airport and film this emergency aircraft coming into Los Angeles. And so, yeah, we, we made the news that night, but it was pretty uneventful, you know, just a little bit faster than normal landing but uh oh and of course they they interview passengers in the baggage area you know well how'd you feel you know were you, were you scared and all this to know pilots uh they made us feel real comfortable and the captain i was with at that time he he was he was real good and so he was uh you know made him feel feel very safe and everything yeah. was under control so Again, that was a good example of learning from that situation of how, okay, if something like this happens, that's how I would want to handle that situation is how he did. So again, uh, as an 18-year FO, that was, you know, it's just an education, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what has been your favorite layover destination to date? Uh, to date, uh, hard to say, really. Uh, enjoy these Hawaii ones. Uh, but uh, I would say probably the ones I enjoy the most is when, say, I get to see family or friends. But being from Colorado, uh, having a, a long Denver layover, sometimes I can rent a car, go down and see my family, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I enjoy enjoy that, but uh, yeah, these Hawaii ones aren't aren't too shabby. Not too shabby, huh? Yeah. So I got a phone call earlier when we were we were heading out um, to one of my favorite destinations on Maui, uh, which is a I call them roach coaches, but they're the mobile food trucks. This is actually a mobile food trailer. And last night we were talking about it, and I had suggested that we go check out. Um, this this South Maui fish company. It's it's wonderful fresh fish, fresh pokey. And you're like, yeah, I'm down for that. So we found where they had moved their location from last year and we went down there. While we were walking down there, I, I got a text message from a friend of mine, a colleague uh that's here that, that is now back from leave for the company. Um so he's back in training on getting recalled on the aircraft and now he's gonna be on the Airbus here in Los Angeles. And part of his OE experience is operating experience that you have to go through or IOE at some companies, initial operating experience. He has to get internationally qualled. And that international qual 
uh, is going to be to here in Maui. And so he saw I had a social media post that, you know, hanging out in Maui and went for a run this morning. I think I posted that and he's like, Hey, you're always in Maui. Uh, you know, I got to come down and, and I'm really not sure on, do I have to get tested? Uh, there's not really much company guidance or I don't know where to look for it. And so I sent him a list of the requirements that he's going to have to do. It's not a big deal. It's just a QR code that you're supposed to get from the state of Hawaii, which is basically, you know, as a crew member stating that you're not ill in any way, shape or form. And you understand the limited quarantine that we are, mm-hmm. that we are supposed to be under. And, um, and it reminded me of, uh, you know, when you're doing IOE or OE, everything's new, you really don't know, and sometimes you don't know where to find stuff. You know, do you have any stories about, you know, one of your first, maybe a story about a, the first time you were on IOE? Well, I remember, uh, you know, once uh, after IOE, particularly after I upgraded on the 737. So, again, I had upgraded spending 10 years on the airplane. so. I felt pretty confident about myself, uh, particularly that first uh, flight. So I'm sitting at home on reserve, and I get a call. Hey, uh, you know, we just had a late sick call. How soon can you get here? Plane's ready to go. Just call us when you get there. You know, we, we need you here. So here I am, Mr. You know, motivated. I grab my hat. You know, it's brand new. Put that thing on shirts pressed to get to the airport and uh so gotta stop swinging through starbucks grab my uh venti size coffee <laughs> head down to the gate you know strut down there get to the airplane of course uh with when they're waiting on you as you've probably seen sometimes when you come on board everybody starts clapping all right pilots here mm-hmm. and i'm just just soaking it up you know and just say hey, how you doing good to see you right on okay and then you make a left turn there and first officer sitting there and goes hey man how you doing i got everything ready just you know let me know when you're ready just make your nest and all this stuff got the clearance and everything and so this was in a uh, 737 hardball airplane and uh so for all those years the cup holder uh well the cup holders on the on those airplanes were uh along the side of the center console right so kind of that little corner where the where the panel comes together well never had any issues on the fo side about putting my venti coffee right in that little cup holder well for whatever reason i'm i'm trying to get this coffee cup into this this cup holder and as a one of those situations you know we talk about it uh, a lot now in our uh, threat and air management you know about threats and you know we we discuss these distractions for the flight you know both uh, pre-flight and also before landing well this flight was just flushed with threats you know as soon as i sit down you know you get the gate engine oh you ready to go cow you know the Flight attendants, you know, they're wanting information. You know, the FO's talking to me. The ground crew's talking to me. I got all these things going on all at once. So all these threats are coming at me, you know. So I'm trying to, you know, knock them down as, you know, one by one. And meantime, I'm trying to get my coffee cup in this thing. It's just not staying in there. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'll get to that later. You know, so I am get my charts out and my headset and, you know, get all squared away. And finally get through all these threats and you can go through the flows and checklists and 
Uh, all right, take a deep breath, and all right, okay, I think we're ready. Let's let's push back. Let's get out of here. So we uh, start the engines up. We start taxiing, and all of a sudden it hits me. It's like, yeah, this is really cool. So now my macho level goes way up. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in charge of this baby now. So we're taxiing out there, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself, and so they clear us for takeoff, and I hit those buttons, the thrust levers go forward, and we're trucking down the runway, you know, I'm just feeling really good about myself, and, you know, V1, rotate, and I pull that yoke back, and all of a sudden, I just see this white thing go flying right by my head, and as I look back, I just see this coffee cup go flying through the air, (laughs) (laughs) and it lands back by the door. Oh, it, and it's it like the, one of those TikTok videos, you know, where they flip the bottle. Yeah. And it landed perfectly right on its lid, upside down. And it's just going bloop, bloop, you oh. know, back there by the door. And I didn't know what to do, you know, because they didn't train me on this for IOE. And I'm looking back there and I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, gear up. Uh, so we get going and all right, autopilot on. And I'm looking back there and it's just going bloop. Bloop. Oh man! So we finally get to a safe altitude, and and uh, I was able to reach back there and pick it up. And there's a you know pool of coffee back there, and so you know I got some. Luckily, I had some towels up there, and I you know, threw them back there to soak it up. And I'm just so I went from just being on a macho high, you know, this is the coolest thing, to just. <laughs> right back down to earth going okay you that's got, the universe putting you in check buddy you got, got a little cocky there so uh yeah it knocked me down a few notches right there so yeah just sometimes uh yeah the universe speaks to you at some yep. point but yep. uh yeah that was my first first trip something always happens the first trip off of iowa yeah i and actually you you you're telling me this story and you know i've flown with Many captains over the years, I've spent my time as a first officer, and one of my favorite stories, I was a very senior FO over at Sandpiper out of Chicago. I had been based there off and on for, at that point, I think around seven years. And I'm flying with a new captain, first trip off IOE, and he's about my age, you know, sits down. He goes, hey, man, just let you know, this is my first trip off IOE. Uh, Everything went fine, but, you know, if you see me doing anything stupid or bonehead, just, hey. By all means, you know, I see you're a senior FO, just kind of keep me in check because I was in that seat for many years, but I'm just excited and, you know, I want to do well. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem, man. And I have that little bit of that Italian arrogance that just always kind of likes to come out. (laughs) So I'm like, don't worry about it, man. You're flying with the best. Don't worry about it. You know, so so he's like, oh, okay. He's like laughing a little bit. And as I calms down and we push off the gate and I'm sitting there, okay, we're waiting. And the ground crew says, all right, uh, Captain, uh, set your parking brake. And Captain says, all right, parking brake release. Your steering's disengaged. Your, or whatever he said, uh, your you know, clear disconnect headset. And uh, he's like, okay. And so I'm still sitting there waiting and watching him. And he goes, okay, tell him we're ready to taxi. I'm like, when you're ready, I'll call for taxi. He goes, well, well, tell him we're ready to taxi. I'm like, when you're ready. <laughs> and the airplane's ready. I'll call him when we're ready for taxi. And he goes, what? I'm like, do you want me to start an engine? 
<laughs> he was so nervous, like, because yeah. you, know, you know, you don't just start an engine. You just have to wait for the captain to call. Go ahead right. and start one. You know, so he's like, "Oh my God, you're trying to be subtle." And I'm like, "Well, you know, I just I didn't want to make you feel bad or sound like a smartass." So I'm just right. you know, like, "Hey, when you're ready, you know, we'll get there." And and she was like, "Oh, well, thanks for not like shoving that in my face." I'm like, "Yeah, no problem, man. I'll start the engine. <laughs> we'll, we'll go when we're ready." You know, and but. What I learned from that experience was always be humble. Yeah. Because when it was my turn to upgrade and I was sitting there and I did a quick upgrade because, you know, I had, I don't know how many, like 7,000 hours in the, in the Embraer 145 when I upgraded a captain on it. Mm-hmm. And I had IOE and everything went fine. Um, I was nervous, but I got through it. And then my very first leg off IOE, I was a New York got LaGuardia JFK co-domiciled captain now. And uh yeah, I remember that first trip. I was very nervous, but luckily I got through it and, <laughs> and I just remembered to stay humble and I really leaned on my FO, said the same thing to him. I said, Hey, it's my first leg off IOE. So you know, um, let's just both keep our heads on a swivel and mm-hmm. stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah, you gotta remember those experiences and and really yeah, it's part of the journey. Keep that ego in check. Right, yeah. Yeah. As we come to a, a, a closing here, uh, I want to, again, say thank you for taking the time off of your personal time here on the layover. Um, I really have enjoyed uh, spending time with you and flying with you. Um, but just the last few questions. If you can go back in time for a moment and give yourself some advice, what would you say to yourself? Well, I think that uh, little deviation in college where I thought I wanted to be a Air Force fighter pilot and uh, getting out of the program for a couple semesters to go do the ROTC thing, uh, and that didn't quite work out because the you know they cut the pilot slots at the at the university, and uh, I wasn't the the brightest one of the bunch, so. Uh, I wasn't able to secure uh, a uh, a pilot slot, so I went back back to the program. So that cost me, you know, a good year behind some of my peers. And as that translates to today, those same peers, pilots, are a couple thousand numbers senior to me here. Uh, so I think you know. Trying to tell that to a nineteen-year-old kid, you know, right? Uh, so that'd probably be my only, and I have no regrets at all because the way everything's worked out, I've been you know, super blessed. But uh, I would say, if if there's anything, I probably would have gone back and said, you know what, nah, just keep doing what you're yeah. doing, stay on, stay, stay on focused track. on track. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And what would you, what advice would you give some young aviator that uh, is you know, bright-eyed and flying a Cessna 172 around the pattern, building time, getting ready to pursue this career? Yeah, just be patient. Uh, so often, particularly in recent years, when, you know, there's just been so many opportunities and, and so much uh, progression and growth, they, there hasn't been a lot of uh, uh, disappointments for some of these younger kids. And now this past year has been real challenging for everybody because uh, all the jobs, you know, everybody stopped hiring. And so we're 
kind of coming out of this little little downturn. Uh, and so some might be discouraged by that, but you just got to just keep doing what you're doing. Stay focused. It's, yeah. it's going to happen yeah. if you want it bad enough. Yeah. For those of us that this is the first downturn that they've experienced, mm-hmm. it might seem like the end of the world. But right. for those of us that have experienced multiple downturns, if not a dozen of them or more, um, it's just another drop in the bucket and you'll get through it. Just stay at mm-hmm. it. Keep focused. It's great advice as well. If you can think back to a person in your life that has made the greatest impact to your success in aviation, who would that person be? In aviation? Um, mm, yeah, there's, just, there's been so many. Um, you know, at Cactus Airlines, we were blessed with a really good group of pilots. And so I learned from a lot of good aviators over the years. Uh, both how to be a good leader, good pilot. Um, so, yeah, I really can't think of one person. There's just been, you know, so many that uh, it's been a pleasure to, to learn from over the years, uh, aviation-wise. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for taking this opportunity to give us a little insight on your journey in aviation and with the horseback archery. Uh, anyone that might uh, have listened to the show and, and thought, man, that that's really sounds interesting. I want to look into it. What's the best way for someone to do that? Well, there's numerous things on YouTube, either under horseback archery or mounted archery. Um our organization here in the United States is Mounted Archery Association of Americas. We've got both website and uh, Facebook pages. My particular club in Northern California is called the Dragon Riders. We've got a Facebook page. So if you look under Dragon Riders Mounted Archery, you'll see our club and uh, everything that we're doing at our facility in uh, Northern California. Yeah, excellent. Well, again, thank you for for sharing your journey with us, and I look forward to our next adventure together. Sounds great. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Well, again, many thanks to Captain Greg Ogborn for sitting down with me on that wonderful layover to talk about his journey in aviation and all of the wonderful information about the mounted archery. I also want to thank the frontline workers out there, the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, EMTs, medical techs, and firefighters, law enforcement, grocery store employees, truck drivers, bus drivers, Amazon workers, Uber, Lyft drivers, and of course, all the airline employees and airport employees that show up every day to work to provide the essential services that we do. Also, a big many thanks to all the flight attendants out there as we're approaching the International Flight Attendant Appreciation Day. We hope you're enjoying Squawk Ident. Please help us out and make sure you subscribe and follow to the Squawk Ident podcast. If you like what you hear, just spend a moment and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We appreciate your support and especially your feedback. Next week, we look forward to another show. I'm off to recurrent training here in a few days and we'll report back on how it went. Also, a lot of headlines have been just riddled with flight attendant abuses and passenger misconduct. We'll dive into a little bit of that as well. Facebook, 
YouTube and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. And one final thank you to Captain Greg Ogburn for sharing his journey with us. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other.